All right, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24 tonight. As we've uh, shared, verse 21 has given the mutual reciprocal command of submission one Christian to another. In this transitional leading to the mutual submission of wife and husband and the rest of the family from chapter 522 all the way to 69. That's a section of the family. And so this is the divine pattern and principles for every believer and generation for marriage. No exception. Every generation, every age, every culture, language, it doesn't make any difference. The standard has never changed. The word of God is the same. So the standard for marriage are not to be based on man's philosophies or religions or anything else. That is sure deception, Colossians 2.8 says. And so we must be careful. The standard is God's word, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. So we're in this section from chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 6, verse 9, the life of the new man in obedience to the word of God. We've seen verse 1 through 7, the walk of the believer in the love of God in contrast to sinners. In 8 through 14, we've seen the walk of the believer in the light. 15 through 21, the walk of the believer in wisdom. And we left off in verse 21. Now 22 to 33 is the next section that we'll follow through. We have the walk of the believer in marriage. And family. So, verse 22 the woman is to submit to her husband. The, the cultural background of women, we gave much this morning and living in Paul's days. What he was uh, suggesting was radical, absolutely radical. The Jewish view of women was, uh, um, was a low view, though it was the highest view, as we'll see. Men prayed every morning and thank God they, he didn't make them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman, as we said. Uh, two schools of thought were prominent during those days. Um, Shammai taught that adultery was only, um, or divorce was only valid through adultery. And then Hillel, and you remember him by the L, liberal, it's for any cause, whatever it may be. And it's interesting when Jesus was talking about that, when Jesus said that adultery was the only reason, they were shocked. Well, it's good for a man to just not be married, he says, if you can handle it. So they were disciples of the school of Hillel, the disciples. Kind of shocking, huh? <laughs> and so they were making reference to the law of Deuteronomy, and really not a law, but a provision there for the law. Chapter 24, verse 1 through 4, where it says that if a man divorces his wife and gives her a right in a divorce, and she marries another, and then he dies... He cannot take her back again, okay? Now, the reason being is that he caused her defilement. There was no adultery at all. Because there was adultery, she would have been stoned to death. And so they were misapplying that for their own use. And how many people do that even today? The Jews asked Jesus about that, and he said it was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed it through the law. And so the heart is always a problem, whether it be in single life or married life. And uh, Rabbi Akiva interpreted uncleanness to mean a desire of a more beautiful woman. If he saw a more beautiful woman, um, then his wife would become unclean. So you've got all kinds of people doing all kinds of different things. Nothing ever changes. You have uh, through the 70s and 80s, uh, you have no-fault divorce. Then the 80s, you had uh, re-reconcilable difference and even made a movie of that and all kinds of stuff. And people twist things to their own ethics, their own morality, or lack thereof. And um, they justify themselves and, and, and everything else. Remember one thing. There are many legal things on earth, in our state, in our nation, that are not biblically right. Abortion and many other things. Okay? So that they may be legal by law, it doesn't mean they're ethical or moral, according to the Bible. So you have to be careful. Um... A woman could never divorce her husband unless he was a leper or he was insane. And so she was given the right in a divorce, signed by a rabbi, um, two witnesses, and then um, she was given her um, diary or alimony, really, and she was on her way. Now, think about it. This is um, the highest ideal when we compare it to the other ones, and yet it was very, very low. 
Uh, the Greek women were uh, much worse. Prostitution was a part of Greek life. The masters laid it down and accepted it as a rule of life. We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitations. We have wives for the purpose of having children, legitimately having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. And that was the way they saw it. Uh, the Greek culture, um, the respectable woman uh, had no public life at all. And um, she just took care of the home, raised the children, um, while the husband found pleasure elsewhere. Divorce was nothing more than a change of mind in that culture. Now, the Greeks infiltrated the Roman society all over, corrupted it. Um, Alexander the Great. And so then followed the Roman view of women, and even much worse, girls and wives were completely under the father's power and authority and then transferred to the son, their husband. And within the, the 500 years of Rome, I've shared many times with you, there was no divorce until this one guy couldn't produce, his wife could not produce a child in uh, 234 B.C., and uh, there was a divorce. But stop and think about our nation that is so young compared to the Roman Empire, and yet both parallels are that they're, they, Rome decayed from within, and this is what we're seeing in our own nation. Uh, no one has conquered us, but decay comes from within. So Greek culture began to permeate the Roman Empire. And Marshall tells of a woman, as I said this morning, her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st wife. Um, that, that's a lot, of, a lot of marriage. And so um, women um, caught in adultery, remember what Jesus was uh, said to be caught in the very act in John 8, and they brought her to him, and he... Uh, um, he said, anybody who's uh, without Salem cast the first stone. And once he said that, every one of them understood the word that means uh, never did sin, could sin, or would sin. And, and they all walked away as he wrote on the ground. Um, the woman was asked, where are your accusers? She says, uh, there are none, Lord. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. doesn't mean that she, Jesus did, he just said, go on and keep doing. No, he saw her heart. She repented, and she went on and sinned no more. Um, she believed in Lord Jesus Christ. But once again, these men, um, these men could have been one of the men that were with her. In, in fact, she was a prostitute, or whatever it may be. Okay? And so, the submission of a woman to her husband in the biblical pattern, why submit to their own husbands, as it says right here in verse 22, God declares it was not good the man should be alone. He would make a help me for him in Genesis 2, 18. Submission... Uh, it is implied by virtue that she was created to meet the needs of Adam, to complete him. Um, submission was understood by Adam and Eve as a design of creation, and the violation of that as the fall came in. Everything was perfect, everything worked, but then sin nature came in. And so the word submit there, hupotasso, again, it's a line up under, it's an imperative command, not a suggestion, and it's a military term to line up under someone who has authority over you. But when it's used in the, in the marriage covenant relationship, it never implies inferiority, as we've told, said many times, but efficiency and productivity. Uh, whenever there's going to be effectiveness and productivity, there must be authority and obedience. Someone's got to give the orders, someone's got to carry them out, or there's nothing going to be happening, whether it be in the business, whether it be in a, a home or marriage or whatever it may be. And once again, here the middle voice indicates it's done by the individual by voluntary self-will. In other words, God doesn't force us to do that. It's a volition of each individual. And so, as you know, 1 Peter 3, 6, Peter points that Sarah was the model of submission to Christian women as she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And yet, as I pointed out this morning, he, um, he said that she wasn't his wife but his sister. He lied. And then he also went along with her plan to um, go into Hagar sexually to have the child that God promised, Genesis 16 and Genesis 20. And yet... She submitted to him, calling him Lord, trusting God in that relationship. And this is what Paul is saying here, even as we move on. The woman submits to her husband in obedience to the Lord as unto the Lord as we'll see. The attitude of the woman, and this is the focus of the text here, um, 
Paul says that if a wife is to submit to her husband, and when she does, it is fitting in the Lord in Colossians 3.10. In other words, appropriate, right. It's what it should be, implying God's creative design and the agreement with that. That's why the obedience, and uh, it is found only two other times in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.4 and Philemon 1.8. Now, this type of submission is not understood by the unbelieving world. You understand that. Uh, you perhaps um, have come to Christ recently, and you're very aware of how you used to think before about marriage, about God, about anything else. And certainly all of us at one point or another remember our worldview being uh, in the world, uh, depending what, how we were raised and how much education we had and everything. All that shaped our worldview. And um, they often isolate the standard for women and always find fault in the Christian doctrine and women's submission and that and they pick scriptures like um, where the Bible says women are not to speak in church and how dare they. Well, he's talking in the context of disrupting the service, but they don't do that. Just like they pick scripture says, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Well, it's talking about critical, sincere, pharisaical judgment, finding fault in everything because we're commanded to make judgment over sin, over death, over life, over many different things. So again, they cherry pick different scriptures, completely out of context, giving it a subjective uh, understanding or accusation, and it's completely out of line, but that's the case. And so uh, the unbeliever is unsaved, just as you and I were. They can and have no capacity to understand the things of God. Now, the submission of a woman is not um, to any man, notice submitting to her own husband. So women are not uh, submissive um, just to anybody. Men um, uh, will abuse and use a woman every way they can uh, when there is no ethic, there is no moral, and even when there is, um, only when there's consequences, they're restrained by anybody in any area. We are lawbreakers. That's why they put speech signs up. That's why they put, but you would think that doesn't matter today. You know, you're going down the freeway 85 miles an hour and you pass up a cop. <laughs> no one even stops anymore because they know they're not going to do anything. We are in a uh, very anarchical time right now. Complete anarchy. Everybody's doing whatever they want. There's very few consequences going on. People just rush into stores and they just steal everything and walk out or destroy things. Nobody does anything. The stand-down order began in Benghazi. It has not stopped since. Complete anarchy will end up sooner or later. And so, um, the woman um, is to submit only to her husband. He alone has the authority over her. Um, other men will only use that for their own benefit. Uh, the woman is to be protected by the uh, headship of her father, her husband, um, against every other male uh, that will want to, again, have his way. And so uh, the woman is to submit sexually to only to her husband, as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 7, 2. This is to keep immorality from happening, meaning adultery, because there he's talking to the Corinthians who had the temple of Aphrodite and the prostitutes who would come at night down and sell their goodies. And some of the Christian um, Corinthians were still visiting some of those prostitutes. And he says, don't you know you make Christ one with a prostitute? They two shall become, be one flesh. You make them one with Christ, and he rebukes them. Um, and so to avoid all this immorality, the woman in submission seeks to please her own husband, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 34. He alone is the one that she has pledged her love to at the altar. He is her covering. The older women, in fact, in Titus 2.4, are to admonish the younger to love their own husbands. The word love there is philandros, speaks of the emotional, devoted love of a wife, the only time that it's used in all of the New Testament. Older women are also to admonish the younger in Titus 2.5 to obey their own husbands, and that word um, it's for the reason that the, the word of God be not blasphemed. And sometimes people say they're Christians and the non-believer looks on and see what they do. And then they kind of 
kind of stunned. If you're a Christian, what are you doing here? So the guys in the bar witnessing to God about Jesus Christ, how he died for their sins, and they're going, what are you doing here? Even the non-believer that knows that that believer is out of place, right? Amazing. And so the word there in Titus 2, 5, hupa tassel, same thing as here, the military submission without any intent of inferiority. Um, the wife is not to be treated like a child or a slave. She doesn't obey like a child. Hupa cool, but hupa tassel, very important. Notice still in 22, the submission of the woman to her husband is as unto the Lord. This is important. This tells us how she carries out the submission, trusting God in faith in her Lord Jesus Christ. This is her perspective, her submission as loving the Lord, as doing it as unto the Lord. Once again, 1 Peter 3, 6 says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, and um, uh, in her relationship, her submission is to God directly. Uh, trusting God for her husband as she prays and all. Realizing Abraham was ultimately responsible to God for his decisions. The man being the head of the home is ultimately responsible for all the decisions that are made. I am the pastor of this church. Regardless of what decisions are made by the staff, I am ultimately responsible for their decisions. I am the pastor. And so... The buck stops with me, and the same with the head of every home. The man is responsible for his wife and his children. And so this is the mark of obedience to the Lord, walking in wisdom, knowing the will of God, being spirit-filled, as we saw in chapter 5, 15, 17, and 18. Um, there are no exceptions to the rule. If a wife is a Christian, then this is for her. There is no explanation, only if you have nice husbands, only if you've been married 10 years, nothing. Only if you live in America, only, no, straight across, every age, every generation, every culture, every Christian. People come in and they're having problems and they sit down and I tell them, well, this is what the Word of God says. Well, you're not helping me. What do you want me to do for you? The Bible says it's a command. Go do it. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Be like Christ. People say, well, that, that's not Christ-like. Really? That's not loving. Really? People are used to the worldly counseling. You sit there for an hour and accuse people and throw all the trash out. And then another week and then another week. And, you know, by the time you get done with three or four sessions, you've got a building full of trash and nothing accomplished. That's the worldly way. You know, when my kids were sick when they were little and they threw up in the middle of the night, we didn't try to decipher what the heck they threw up. One of us grabbed the kid, cleaned them up, while the other one cleaned up the bed, and then we put them back in bed. The Christian community just has their trust and faith in psychology and uh, all this crazy stuff that the world has given up to a great extent because it doesn't work. It only makes things worse. And so, um, there are no exceptions to this rule. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Proverbs 14.1 says, The thing God is looking for in the wife is her attitude of submission. This is the context of these verses for the woman. We'll get to the man as we move along. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the attitude of our heart, the motive, is what God's going to reward us for. Um, human love submits for personal benefit as the motive in contrast to agape love in 1 Corinthians 13. That agape love is for the benefit of others. It believes all things, it holds all things, endures all things. Agape love never fails. And so we as Christians have the potential to manifest agape love but it doesn't mean it will happen automatically. It doesn't mean that, that um, that's how I live. I have the potential to grieve agape love. I have the potential to deny agape love. And when I do, I fail. But when I yield to agape love, then Jesus gets the glory and he gets the things done for me. 
And so look at 23, the woman to submit to her husband because she is, uh, he is the head of the wife. The headship of man was God's design for the husband is the head of the wife. Adam created first, Genesis 2.18, as we said. Paul says that the, every man, the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Now, if, if you want to apply inferiority to submission, then you have to say that Christ is inferior to the Father. You can't say that. Because Christ's submission to the Father for the sake of redemption, for efficiency and productivity and effectiveness, it has nothing to do with inferiority. Nothing at all. And so headship of man is not um, complete without the submission of the woman to an extent. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 11 from 8 all the way to 12. The man was not created from, or the, the woman, the man was not created from the woman or for the woman, but the woman came from the man and for the man. Very clear in that passage. Yet neither one of them are independent of each other in the Lord, but dependent on one another. Very, very important. And so the headship here of the man was usurped by the woman back in the fall. Now we're born again, now we're put right side up. We understand the priority, we understand the problem. When Eve disobeyed and the fall came through her, but it was a tribute to Adam being the head of the race, God said, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you in Genesis 3.16. This is the curse. Keep that in mind. That's the context. The result of the fall. The word desire there means a stretching out after, a longing desire. Some try to interpret that as that it was her sexual desire towards Adam. It cannot be. Prior to the fall, it was perfect. With the fall, it became tainted. There's only two other times the word appears. The next one is in the following chapter in Genesis 4, 7. Where Cain, God says, why is your countenance fallen? If you do right, will you not be accepted? And he describes sin as a crouching animal ready to leap upon its prey, its desire to control you. The context of that is an evil, not repenting and leaning to the desire that he's going to murder his brother. Okay? God is telling him, don't do it. The third time is Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, and that's the desire of the groom towards his virgin bride on the honeymoon night. So three different contexts, but the word means the same, longing after. Now, what God is saying in Genesis 3, 16, is that the desire of the woman now after the fall would be inclined to usurp authority over the man and his desire would be to control the woman, overpower her, instead of being loving husband and wife, both being in a fallen nature, now in fallen state. Even though they have repented, that warfare is still on, right? So it doesn't happen automatically. We have to grow in the Lord and trust the power of God and obey the word of God. And, um, and, and then we receive the benefit of that. Remember that um, sin entered in through one man and death through sin and death passed to all men, Romans 5, 12 says. And that's Adam, the first man. The last Adam, the first Adam was Adam. The last Adam was Jesus Christ. And he came to undo the mess that the first Adam brought upon us. And so Paul, the apostle, tells the Galatians 5, 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another and that you cannot do that which you wish. So we are born into warfare. Um, before we were born again, we did whatever we wanted to. Uh, some of you were moral and ethical. Some of you were not. But either way, we were following our own vein by our own energies, our own devices. Now as a Christian, now we have an enemy, Satan. Satan was not our enemy before we were Christians. We were following him. Now you become an enemy. Now he seeks you out 
to stumble you, to tempt you to everything else. The world's out there. Your sin nature from within. It's a bad trinity. The world, Satan, and your own sin nature. Warfare's on. And so the headship of man is complete to the, um, compared to the headship of Christ in the church, as he says, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body here in verse 23. The church to Mr. Christ's headship due to the fact that he is the picture of a loving, concerned uh, savior uh, towards his bride, the church. And so the wife uh, to her own husband, and the husband, as we'll get to there, towards the wife, um, Christ died for his church. The husband's to die for his wife. Christ is the one nourishing the church. The husband is to nourish his wife, to protect her, to watch over her, to guide her. The church submits to the lordship of Christ and the headship of Christ due to the fact that he is responsible to protect, to provide, to preserve the church. So the wife to her husband as a type of savior will receive all that benefit from her husband. And this is the scripture a standard for every generation of Christians. Now, Christ is the one um, ever protecting and providing for the church. And so, the husband, the same towards his wife. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Jesus Christ, Colossians 2, 3. Christ will complete the work to the end, never leaving her, forsaking her. And the same with the husband towards the wife. Um, whether the husband is saved or unsaved, the man is the head of that woman by God's design. Genesis 1.27. Please understand that. The covenant a non-believer goes into is not man-made. It's God. God made the institution of marriage. Okay? And God holds them responsible for the vows that they give and take, even as non-believers. All right? And so a female is always under someone's authority, like I said, her father or family, for protection. And by, by the way, when she gets married, she takes the man's name, not the reverse. Though there are some times that women will do that. It's not historical. It's not the norm. Uh, it's just pride and stupidity. That's all. Uh, Christian women are to win their unbelieving husbands by their example, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 says, by godly uh, living and the example, um, obeying the Lord. She's not to uh, initiate divorce when it comes to bad relationships in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. That if she's married to an unbeliever, that unbeliever doesn't want to be her husband anymore because she's a Christian then she is set free or he is set free by the non-believing wife, okay? But if you're both Christians, the only thing that dissolves that marriage is adultery. Nothing else. Very, very important. And so Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 7. Now I say this because many Christians and pastors take 1 Corinthians 7 to say that that passage is talking about separation. No, it isn't. The context is divorce, to be remarried. He says, don't do it. And if you do depart, you remain unmarried. Very, very clear. All right? And so, in Christ, we are inverted right side up from the fallen nature. And um, now we can obey even here as he tells the woman to submit. This is why Paul tells Timothy that a woman is not to usurp authority over a man. Um, in the church for the sake of a pastor teacher in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Uh, many people try to um, kind of just uh, explain and say it's, uh, that's cultural, uh, but it really isn't because um, it's historical and biblical, the reasons that are given there. Because first, Adam was created first and Eve was deceived. They're historical and biblical truths, not cultural, all right? And it's because churches and seminaries and colleges want to bend to the cultural watered-down norms out of pressure to receive finances or anything else. It's the way of man. And so 
unsubmissive women to the headship of their husbands are depicted and not in a good light in Scripture. Proverbs 21.9 says, Better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. We'll get to the men when we get there. Um, the man becomes the type of the savior, the protector, the provider, the preserver of the wife. Um, headship being um, a position of great responsibility and accountability to God. And so he will give that account in that day of his wife, each man. Look at 24. The woman is to submit to her husband as head in everything it says. Now, the degree of the, of the submission by the woman is limited to what is scriptural. He says, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, submission is not to be given to a husband at every whim or an unbelieving husband. 1 Corinthians 3, 1, if it's a believer, he would be carnal. If he's an unbeliever, he doesn't understand the things of God. Submission is unbiblical when it defiles and contradicts or defies or contradicts the word of God. Um, the principle in Acts 5, 29 says that you judge whether we're to obey God or man when they tell us not to preach the gospel. So whenever they tell us to do something that's not biblical, we will not do it. Very, very simple. And submission is not to be given to a husband when it violates the wife's conscience. 1 Corinthians 10, 28 and 29 make this very, very clear. This goes to the form of entertainment, whatever it may be, uh, lewd movies, whatever it may be, or maybe going to parties that the husband maybe is, uh, goes to non-believers and there's activities and language there that is just violate your kind. You're not to obey that. Okay? God doesn't say that we're to do that. Okay? And so everything she submits to is to be honorable and glorifying to God. And um, very, very important. The submission and everything is to be... Um, despite the husband that is not the literal savior, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything, and everything that's scriptural. And so the word therefore there is a strong adversive particle in the Greek. The word but, or nevertheless, is a better translation showing contrast while the word therefore shows conclusion most of the time. And so it is a contrasting type of Christ and the husband, the extension of the type, yet opposing the quality of an actual Savior. He is never to think that he truly is the Savior of his wife. No, he's the one that's responsible for his wife and will give an account to God. And so the submission of the wife and everything is to be as um, the church to Christ. There's the parallel. Uh, she does this as a sacrifice of love to Christ, pleasing him, understanding his will, expressing spiritual worship and thanksgiving, being filled with the Spirit of God, as we've seen in Ephesians 5, 2, 10, 17, 18, 19, 21, 22. Keep section there before you get into the marriage. And so the principle is to deny oneself, Matthew 16, 24. Pick up your cross and follow him always losing sight of ourselves first. Obedience and the glory of God is the goal. What hinders submission is pride, selfishness, and self-will, always, always. Um, wives, your submission in everything is guarded again by Scripture, but don't use the word to escape your responsibility and to try to justify your disobedience. You have to be careful. Um, does your husband know you love him? Do you tell him that? Do you tell him you appreciate him? Do you pray for him? Are you there to encourage him? Very, very important. Proverbs 24, 3 says, Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. Women, your submission in everything is to be after the model of the church. It is a double analogy. Christ to the church, husband to wife, found nowhere else in Scripture except here in Ephesians. It's an incredible high view of marriage. A soft word turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger, Proverbs 15.1 says. Now, the positive picture is overwhelming then. The wife is compared to 
the church the object of God's personal love in verse 22 and 23. The church is the object of God's love, so is the wife to be the love object of her husband. The marital relationship is the closest and most binding, the most sacred of all, as that of Christ to his church. The relationship to children is temporal. It's not till death as husband and wife. My priority is God and my wife. My children come after my wife. That doesn't mean you don't take care of your children. As parents, you take the priority for your children. But in my priority of love and responsibility, my wife comes first. It's more beneficial for the children to know I love their wife, their mom immensely to bind the home, to teach them what it is to be a husband and wife. Very, very important, a parent. And so the woman's submission, hupotasso, never implies again inferiority is the divine order, and it's to her own husband. Again, as 21 and 22 says, submission and authority must exist again for effectiveness and productivity equal before God. Um, there, there's respective roles, or male and female. Uh, there is no confusion or contradiction, um, but it is a completion of the two into one that's God has made that design from creation. Um, submission by the woman has a built-in protection again so as not to be abused by carnal husbands or by unbelieving men. Only what scripture commands the woman to obey, she's to submit to. The violation of her conscience to scripture places her on a higher submission directly to God and Christ. So the husband is not to be a tyrant, a despot, but a type of Christ, a positive picture of love and sacrifice in marriage. Now, Paul is very aware that none of these men, not even himself, is perfect or sinless. But he also is very aware that they can obey Christ and be the husbands that God would want them to be. Very important. There's no contradiction at all. Marriage is not a relationship of master and slave. Christ died to purify his bride. They are not in competition, but in completion of each other as uh, God's creation. And so in 23, the woman completes the man as the church completes Christ. That's an amazing thought. In, in Ephesians 1:23, the church is said to be the fullness of Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That verse is a mystery for Christ needs nothing to be completed. Nothing to complete him. Yet, the body of the church fills Christ. This is well knowing that Christ is God and he needs nothing to complete him, yet in subordinate position seeks to be complete or incomplete without the bride, the church begetting sons and daughters of God. Great mystery. Amazing. And so the wife plays the same role from the beginning as God gave two particulars about the woman's role. She was to bear children by him and with him, Genesis 1.28. And she was to be help comparable to him and for him, completing him in Genesis 2.18. This is the highest calling for a woman, to be a wife and a mother, unless she is given the gift of celibacy so that she can live single without being stumbled in her sexual um, desires. And 1 Corinthians 7, 7, and 9 makes that very clear. The highest call of a woman is to be a wife and a mother. The world tells you completely different, ladies. Most women today are made to feel that if they are not working or in some profession fulfilling their own sense of self-worth by contributing to the home income, they're a failure. What a lie. The world and Satan has given to women. The man is the one to provide for the bride. From the sweat of your face, God says, the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, Genesis 3.19. He said this to the man. The man's body is stronger, more muscular, more enduring, more stamina. 
We're two different individuals. I realize that some women have to work being single mothers, divorced, or the husband's disability has taken place in some accident or something. Um, but I also realize that too many women, even in the church, work to get the extras and the things that really they can do without, and they have children while doing this. In the past 45 years, we've seen many women do that, and, and it's a great regret in many different ways. Um, obedience is the way God has chosen to protect us from so many hurts and problems in life. Children can get along with only one car in the family, but not with one or two absentee parents. It's impossible. The two-income family, on the average, makes very little over the one income. After childcare, travel for children, herself, lunches, and federal, state, and income tax. Many working parents say they would love to spend more time with their kids. We've heard this often in the past 45 years. But their actions betray them as they go out on the weekend holiday without the children, saying they deserve it or they need some time for themselves. That's the mantra of the 70s, 80s, and 90s and into the 2000s. It's amazing. Verse 24, the woman and man are one, not two. Not two separate individuals, just as the church is subject and one with Christ Jesus. The two shall become one flesh. The woman is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, Genesis 2.24. Their one is before God takes place at the altar and their vows. The celebration is at the honeymoon, the sexual union. But the oneness takes place at the altar before God. Their oneness is worked out through life together based on their spiritual understanding of God's word that reveal his design for marriage and respective roles of husband and wife, father and mother. And so some wives or, or husbands live as if they are single, even as believers, and they spend more time with their friends than with their wife or their husband. That's wrong. Why'd you get married? Take care of your home. I'm not saying you can't go out to a baseball game if you want to go with some friends or whatever, but some people live as if they're single, though they're married. That's not right. Certainly not a good example to the children. And so the woman and the man are heirs together the grace of life, 1 Peter 3, 7 says. They benefit one another. Um, they each make life enjoyable, and they cannot see themselves without each other. Yet they can hurt one another more deeply than any other. But they can open their hearts to each other as no other also. Welcome to the human race. <laughs> Christ is our only hope. And so the perspective of the woman for her husband is to be loyalty and faithfulness. Even in her romantic love, Proverbs 5, 10 through 16 is very detailed and descriptive about the relationships. The um, Shunammite in Song of Solomon um, says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine and his desire is for me passion. We find that in Song of Solomon 216, 6-3, Over and over it says, Do not waken your desire until it pleases. It's talking about maintaining your virginity, ladies, as well as men. Don't be playing with fire. You will get burned. No one's the exception. The Shunammite, to her beloved, says again in Solomon, Song of Solomon 8.6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, O Mulvem, and flames. The romantic love between a man and a woman under the hand of God, very, very important. Marriage is presented in society in a negative light to justify themselves 
and not feel guilty and to justify their presentation, portraying constant fighting, unhappiness, and marriage always being an adultery at times. That's the way the movies are present everything all the time. Concluding divorce is inevitable in most times, so why even bother to get married? Well, Romans 1.22 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. When you deviate from God's word, you become a fool. I become a fool without exception. And so the mindset presented to the woman is one that makes her feel like she's being cheated unless she has her own identity. But in reality, for her not to be cheated, her identity is to be tied to her husband. But the Bible says, not separate from her husband. And so advertisement, billboards, television have um, made the woman feel that she's being held back. She deserves more. A woman's made to believe she can have it all and not pay a price. Oh, you can't. <laughs> you can't. We have an old saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, there's no way. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, that two shall become one flesh. And so the woman is encouraged and presented as the initiator in our modern day society, which further weakens marriage and the family. The woman hits on men aggressively, being very suggestive at times, at other times luder than men in her sexuality. It's presented like that in the movies and magazines and everything. She holds her own with the man at work, at play, promiscuity, celebrating her quote, quote, womanhood, no longer being restricted or limited to be a mere housewife or a mother. Wow. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes Shame is like rottenness to his bones, Proverbs 12, 4 says. And so the parallel passages in the, are in harmony if you go through the scripture. Let me just give you some. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, the virtuous woman. We're going to be getting into Proverbs after we're done with Ephesians. Start reading them. Um, this is not a checklist, gentlemen, on Proverbs 31. Uh, it's an exhortation um, as a model of an example of a godly woman. The counsel of Paul to Timothy for the church order for women you find in 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 15. And um, younger widows under 60 are to be refused to be put on the scroll of widows, but to marry. Um, um, and they'll most likely will marry, it says, confirming that men and women are created to marry unless they are given the gift of celibacy. Women with time on their hands um, without biblical priorities, create problems for themselves and others. There in uh, 1 Timothy 5, 13 and 14 tells us. It's a key verse for the divine role. In verse 13 it says, on the negative side, they learn to be idle, wander from house to house, becoming gossipers, busybodies, speaking things they ought not. On the positive side, they are to marry, be, bear children, manage the home. Um, the word means a head of family in the sense of guiding and managing the household affairs. In other words, a housekeeper. And you find that in Matthew 10, 25, 20, verse 1, 21, 33. You may be staying at home and doing worse than a woman who works if you're not being godly. Simple. They are to do this in order that no opportunity is given for the word of God to be blasphemed or for the enemy to speak reproachfully. Women are disobeying the rule of the church at that time. That's why he's writing it. For some have already turned aside after Satan in verse 15 of that chapter of Timothy. And so the same problems that we find in society today were there. No different. On the counsel of Paul to Titus, you might read Titus 1, chapter 2, verse 1 through 5 that identifies with sound doctrine. The older women are to teach by word and deed. Uh, men are addressed first in verse 2. Then the women, they are to be all that 
was stated to the men, plus reverend behavior, not slander, not giving them much wine, teachers of good things in verse 3. And then verse 4 and 5, the important things older wives are to teach the younger by admonition is to love their husbands, a man lover, her husband, not any man, to love their children, to be discreet, meaning self-control, moderate as a, to opinion or passion. Live as an example of a godly woman, Peter put it in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, by example. To be chaste, meaning innocent, modest, clean, and pure. To be homemakers. The old King James translated keepers at home. The word is made up of two words, appearing only this one time in the New Testament. Oik, meaning dwelling of house. Orgos, meaning guard or keeper. The word, uh, again, in good classical Greek, often is translated a stayer at home. So from the biblical perspective, it is very clear the role of the husband to work and the role of the wife to be a mother and a housekeeper for the protection of the relationship, the marriage, the children, everything else that follows. It's not just to try to mess up your fun. And so the reason, again, is that the word of God be not blasphemed the world, the world paints a, a bleak picture, a boring picture of a wife and a mother, but yet the world has produced worse wives and mothers. <laughs> the world doesn't produce godly people. Not at all. They give you mafia wives, basketball wives, Kardashians, girl on a while, and all of that kind of stuff. That's what they give you. Amazing. The married women who stay at home, on the other hand, can pollute themselves by getting caught up with whatever. You fill in the blank. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he, Proverbs 23, 7 says. I understand some of you have to work as single mothers and those with working husbands. So both of you have to see how you will plug up those holes in your home to meet the need of your children it is very, very important. Let me give you the value of time in your decision-making from the time your child is born till they're 18. If you're working as a mother and your husband, both of you need to prioritize, I said, because your children sleep a third of their life. So from 18, six years, they sleep. The next third of their life, they go to some institution, hopefully not prison. That makes 12. That leaves you six. The first three years are toddlers. Ladies, you have three years for your children to mold and shape them, to put your imprint on them. Very, very important. If you work, you spend 4,000 hours with your child. If you stay home, you put 40,000 hours into your child from birth to 18. If you work, someone will put 36,000 hours to mold and shape your child like them, not like you. Wow. What a novel way to look at that, huh? Amazing. Better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasures and trouble therewith, Proverbs 15, 16 says. God's role for the woman is for family protection and social stability. My parents both worked. I don't want to tell you what I did while they were working. When they were home, I was okay. All right? It's just the way it is. Someone's got to hold down the fort. The outcome is a nightmare of the 2000s, the new millennial, the indoctrination of children by public schools system, undermining parental authority, legal rights of children against their parents, the redefining of marriage as one woman to one man being 
anything that's possible to further confuse or recruit young children to the homosexual lifestyle for ultimate destruction of society. After decades of decline, a rise in stay-at-home mothers took place. Let me read this. The share of mothers who do not work outside the home rose to 29% in 2012, up from a modern-era low of 23% in 1999, according to the new Pew Research Center analysis of governmental data. And then it says, this is due to the immigrant wives who stay home and the fact of lack of jobs and one spouse is unemployed. How ironic that 21 years after the double income kicked in, we came back to a high percentage of one provider due to the lack of jobs, but the, the prices were still double. How is that progress and protection for the family? Interesting. The pain of obedience, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing compared to the pain of disobedience throughout life. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Better to obey than to sacrifice. If a woman does not have to work, but chooses to work, she will know how big a mistake she's made in the future, at times even by the mouth of her own children. Any attempt to justify oneself is greater sin. It's best to confess it and live through the grace of God and ask him for wisdom. So the Christian woman is not to be thought of as spineless, voiceless person who submits without thought or discretion. That does not hesitate to confront her husband for his accountability. Oh, no. She calls him out in loving kindness and grace because she wants the best for both of them. She wants to work things out. The professionals and courts now can even order you to parental classes. We are free to make choices, but we are not free to escape the consequences. I have found individuals who are always demanding the rights to exercise their freedom in Christ usually end up in bondage. The problems experienced by children in the last 50 years are adult incurred by buying into the agenda and philosophy of the world, living for self, becoming, because there is no God to be accountable to. In January of 2012, California schools began to indoctrinate children to the homosexual lifestyle as a norm. That's 10 years ago. From K to 12th grade, Jerry Brown did that. Many children in public schools were taught that worldview, believed it, and have lived it and continue to live and promote it to recruit others. Now we have transsexualism. God help us. The doctors, the parents, the educators, they're doing this at the decision of the child, at the objection of the parents. It's a nightmare. You cannot be the godliest parent without walking with Jesus Christ. And you can be the godliest parents and have the children of the devil. Or you might be an ungodly parent and have godly children. It's always the individual choice, but you as a parent are held responsible for your example, for your input, for your accountability, and what you do with your children. God will hold you as well as he will hold me accountable. And so may God give us wisdom, direction, as we seek the Lord in the word, as we fellowship together, as we give an example to those family members that are not saved, the friends, and those around us. As we see Jesus could come back any day, the way things are going. Father, thank you for your love and goodness. We love you, we thank you. We pray, Lord, you continue to minister to our hearts. Thank you for tonight and for your word, and we pray that you would just be glorified in everything, Lord. Give us wisdom and understanding. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. 
You might be over the internet. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, then all you have to do is call upon him, recognizing you're a sinner, headed for hell, lost, and that Jesus died and he is able to forgive you because he died in your place. If you believe that, that's the work of the Spirit of God, not because you're so smart. And so if you want to be born again, a prayer of repentance is what Jesus always required. This is a very simple prayer of repentance. You can say to the Lord, not to us, but to the Lord. He'll forgive you, and he will save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to believe, to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.